So have you ever had to heed some advice? You know, follow some instructions. Pay attention to some counsel one way or the other. Have you, have you ever had to heed some advice? Well, if you were here this past Wednesday, you had to heed the advice of our weather pros, right? One of the worst predicted storms in history came our way this past week, and it, it pressed down in our community for several hours. My family did the Ripley's Believe It or Not act of, of cramming six mostly grown people into a half bathroom about the size of a refrigerator box for about 20 to 30 minutes. It was an amazing period in the history of our family. But, but we did it. You know, we, we heeded the weather alerts. We paid attention to the tornado warning. Now, every day we heed the advice of people. We heed the advice of parents and friends. We heed the advice of teachers and doctors. We heed the advice of police officers. Hopefully we heed the advice of, of pastors here and there. And maybe we even heed the advice of a legendary bear. Today is the last round of the Augusta National Golf Tournament known as the Masters. Uh, last round is today. This week there was an interview with Rory McIlroy, who's one of the professional golfers participating, and he said that he was going to strive this week to heed the advice that was given to him by six-time six -time champion uh, Jack Nicklaus, also known as the Golden Bear. Now, this was the advice that Nicholas gave to him. He said that you need to be more patient and you need to be less aggressive. You need to be more patient and you need to be less aggressive. McElroy went on to say in the interview, he told me I took on too much a couple of times and it cost me a couple of green jackets. Jack also said it is a golf course that can tempt you into doing a little bit too much. A little bit too much. I know exactly what that means. I grew up going to the Masters as a kid and I can honestly say that to this day there is no place like Augusta that tempts me to have a little bit too much egg salad sandwich over and over and over again, way, way too much. Temptation, temptation is, is real. McElroy is in 11th place this morning, so he'll have to heed that advice and pull it all together to climb the leaderboard if he's going to try to win today. You know, the first man and the first woman, they were not very good at heeding advice. It wasn't really advice, though. It was actually a commandment. But they refused to pay attention to the commandment. They refused to acknowledge the commandment. They were not more patient, and they were not less aggressive. See, they became convinced in their minds and their hearts that, that God was trying to, to keep them from something, that God was holding back on them, that he, he didn't want them to have wisdom, that he didn't want them to have pleasure. And so when a ripe opportunity came along, they grabbed it with both hands and they sunk their teeth into it. And in that moment, they realized that this ripe opportunity that they were banking their lives on was actually a lie. But it was too late. They'd already fallen off of the wall and, and that fruit could not be put back together again. You know what happens every single time I do something in life? And you know what happens every single time you do something in life? There's a consequence. Some good, some bad, but, but every single time something happens based on what we do or don't do, 
based on what we say or don't say. There are consequences. The first man and the first woman, they, they dishonored God. They disobeyed God. They rejected God. The same God who created them, who loved them, who gave them a paradise to live in. They disobeyed. They rejected him. And there were consequences for that disobedience. What kind of consequences? Well, we're going to find out this morning. Looking at Genesis chapter 3, we'll be beginning with verse 16 and going down through verse 19. Verse 16, the Lord God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. This is not some vague religious philosophy. I have experienced this firsthand four times. This is a real thing. Before our first child was born, the teacher of our birth class told all of us uh, soon-to-be dads that we needed to go buy a focal point gift for our new moms. And the purpose of the focal point gift was that you're supposed to use it as a, a way to calm and, and encourage you know, your, your wife in that moment when the, the hardest contractions begin to come and, and even on through the labor and delivery. So that week, I rode all over Raleigh. Man, I went to every little cutesy little boutique store and every little plow. I'm going to find some good little focal point gift. And I ended up going the religious route, which I really didn't mean to. In fact, I didn't get the gift at a Christian bookstore. But, but I ended up with this, this little figurine of a cute little lamb all snuggled up next to a lion. A lion and a lamb. It was cute. Now, my wife may remember this different. But I'm pretty sure in that moment when I held up the focal point gift, I think about 10 seconds later I started thinking, yeah, this is not going to do the trick. Uh, I think I'm just going to put this over on the shelf. It's a real thing. It's a real moment. But the question is, why? Why is this the punishment? Why is this the penalty? Why this increase in pain in childbirth? Well, here's one approach and one way moving toward an answer to that question. Jen Wilkin writes, Birth is euphoria, tinged with the ache of separation, the loss of a kindred closeness. It feels a little like a betrayal of a trust, thrusting a tiny person from a place of relative self-sufficiency to a place of complete dependence. She goes on, it is undeniably natural and necessary. I'm glad my 15-year-old is not still in utero. Nevertheless, we are stunned by the pain it involves and astonished at the amount of adjusting to come to grips with our new reality as a mother. And then she says this, Childbearing reminds me that I am not self-sufficient, that I do not have what it takes to preserve and protect my children. It saves me from the belief that I am God. Remember in the garden? The woman was listening to the enemy, and she was convinced that if she ate the fruit, that she would become her own little God. And yet she found out that was a lie. So the increased pain of childbirth was going to remind her of that, remind her of the lie that she believed in, and to remind her that she always was going to be desperately in need of God. Always. And, and what God are we talking about? We're talking about the one true God. 
We're talking about the God who fearfully and wonderfully created her, who was always pursuing her with grace and mercy and love. That's the God that she would need. That's the God that we need. So the first part of her consequence, her penalty, so to speak, is there would be increased pain in childbirth. The second part of her penalty sounds similar, but it's a little bit different. Look at the next part of verse 16. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, there are two possible biblically supported pictures that we have here in just this one verse. The, the first is pretty, pretty clearly read in the verse itself. God created, God honoring intimacy is the most natural way for childbirth to come about. And so therefore, without God honoring, God created intimacy, there wouldn't be childbirth and there wouldn't be pain in childbirth. And so the picture we have here is that the woman, knowing that there would be indescribable pain, in other words, knowing after the first pregnancy or the second pregnancy, knowing after delivering children, the pain that was involved, she would still have a desire of intimacy toward the man. Now, now don't forget this. Now, God created the man and the woman, and he gave him a command. So before they sinned, there was this command, and the command was to be fruitful and to multiply. So before they ate of the fruit, intimacy was a a good thing, and childbearing was a good thing. And either there was some pain or no pain, but there wasn't multiplied, increased pain. But sin changed all of that. See, marriage and intimacy and childbearing are still God-created, God-honoring good things. But our sin can change that. So I would challenge and and plead with us for the sake of our lives, for the sake of our homes, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our community, really for the sake of the work of the gospel around the world. Let us not take what God has said is good and destroy it with our sin. Let us not take our sin into what God calls good. The second picture that we have here is a little different. It's the picture of the woman's desire for the husband in a way that she does not desire to honor his place as the leader and the head of the house. See, the woman ignored, she rejected the commandment of God, a commandment that was first given to her husband. So she ignored God, she rejected God, she was ignoring the leadership of her husband. She chose to go her own way, and things didn't work out so well, did it? Now, man, let me stop here for a moment and just kind of give us a challenge. We should not be men that make it hard to be honored in our position. In other words, we should be men that love God first and most. We should be men that love our neighbors in the same way that that we love ourselves. We should follow Jesus as if our lives depended on it, because guess what? Your life does depend on it. Don't be an apathetic man. A man who goes and works and then hunts and fishes and plays golf and and builds things and and fixes things and leaves all that family stuff to the wife. Don't be that guy. And don't be an arrogant man that that people follow and, and work with and work for out of an unhealthy sense of fear and responsibility. Now, be a humble man. Be a man that that people desire to to follow, people desire to serve alongside of, out of a healthy sense of delight and respect. Be that man. Be someone worthy to be honored. 
in the position. Nancy Lee DeMoss, years ago, she's now Nancy Wolgamuth, I think I'm saying her name right, wrote a book, and the book was called Lies Women Believe, subtitled, And the Truth That Sets Them Free. It's basically a book of 40 lies that discourage and distract and trap women every day. Number 24 reads like this. If I submit to my husband, I'll be miserable. The enemy, remember, lied to the first woman in the garden, and he's been lying to women about everything else ever since, every day. I've shared these thoughts from you from women's ministry leader and and author, uh, Susan Hunt. I repeat a few of them again this morning. She writes, I cannot give logical arguments for submission. It defies logic that Jesus would release all the glories of heaven so that he could give us the glory of heaven. She says submission is not about logic. It is about love. Jesus loves us so much that he voluntarily submitted to death on a cross. And God's command is that wives are to submit to their husbands. It is a gift that we voluntarily give to the man we have vowed to love in obedience to the Savior we love. God said that man needs a helper. The true woman celebrates this calling and becomes affirming rather than adversarial, compassionate rather than controlling, a partner rather than a protagonist. And then she writes this, Her fear and pride, they dissolve in the light of God's covenant promise to be her God and to live within her. Submission is simply a demonstration of her confidence in the sovereign power of the Lord By rejecting God, by disobeying God, the first woman created a a world of, of pain and pride. And she has passed that down to all of her daughters to this day and even beyond. It's a hard road. It's a hard penalty. But it's not a penalty disconnected from God. He is still there to be your God. What about the man? What about this guy? What were the consequences for his rebellion? What did, what did he get? What were his penalties? Listen to verse 17. The Lord God says to the man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now let's just stop there for a second, all right? Husbands, does this mean you do not have to listen to your wife? No, that is not what this means at all. In fact, the surest sign of a fool is a husband who will not seek the advice of his wife or a husband who constantly and consistently rejects all advice from his wife. Now, the teaching here is not what it may seem on the surface. But I tender that advice with this reminder of what I said earlier. Ladies, don't be a lady that makes it hard to come to advice. Ladies, love God first and most in your life. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Follow Jesus like your life depends on it because your life does depend on it. Don't be an apathetic woman who maybe works a job somewhere or works at home or or shops or cleans or cooks or or shuttles kids to sports and school and, and just lets the husband handle all that business. Let the husband handle all those decisions. Don't be that person. 
And don't be a pushy, bossy woman that, that demands that everybody, Harold, that was not a point to amen. <laughs> don't be a bussy, a, 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 a bossy man. Harold, you got me all thrown off now. Where am I in my notes? Let's go back to the first. Don't be a bossy woman in this way, in the same way as a man. An arrogant man creates followers out of fear and responsibility. Don't be the kind of woman that creates followers or makes people work with you just so that mama can stay happy. Don't be that person. Rather, be a humble woman who people want to follow, who people want to come and serve with, who people want to love and be friends with out of a healthy sense of delight and respect. That's the picture that we have throughout the scriptures of of how we're supposed to function as children of the Lord, as followers of Jesus. So why is God pointing this out that the man was listening to his wife? Well, here's the thing. The wife was listening to the enemy. She, She was listening to the crafty questions. She was being drawn away from the Lord. And so what the husband should have done is stepped in and helped. See, the husband shouldn't have just stood by and ignored all this, much less participated. The husband should have been the one going in to lead her away from temptation, to lead her back to the one who is known as holy, 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 the one who loved them and gave them life and gave them paradise. That's what he was supposed to be doing. But you know what? He didn't. He didn't do that. And so there are consequences for his laziness and for his rebellion. Look, continuing on verse 17, at what those consequences are. The Lord said, Because you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Continuing on. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. So, men, the message is if you hate your job, that guy in the garden, it's all his fault. That's the message here, right? No, not really. You see, there was work before the fall. There there was some measure of work that happened before they ate of the fruit. Before he took of the forbidden tree, he did some kind of work. There's no indication in the Bible that the man was, was sitting in the garden in a recliner, you know, watching golf on TV and, and had these little angels that were dropping grapes in his mouth, you know, anytime he got hungry. Now, there was some kind of work, but to him it wasn't work. It wouldn't have fallen under the category of, of toil. Work was, work was good. So let me just say a few things to us men about work, and really this is true for women as well. If you're a young man and you're still in middle school or, or high school, or maybe college, or maybe you're, you're just out, you've got your first job now, maybe you've been working a little longer, maybe closer to middle age, maybe you're close to retirement, maybe you've already retired. There's really only one huge main principle that should drive how you study and how you work and how you retire. And that principle goes like this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's incredibly simple math, right? Do all to the glory of God. So everything you do, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, all of it should be geared toward bringing attention, favorable attention, 
to the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God, all that we do. So come to church and sing and worship God. And go to school and go to work and study and do your job and worship God. But worship doesn't change just because we leave this room. We are called to worship God in all things. C.S. Lewis said this, The work of a Beethoven and the work of a housekeeper become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. No matter what your title is, no matter what you do, no matter where you work, if you are a believer, your goal in life is to bring glory and favorable attention to God. That's why we exist, to worship and enjoy and bring glory to God. Your job, men, is not a result of the curse of sin. It's your job. So do it. Just do your job. Just do it to the best of your ability with the strength that God gives you and do it in a way that draws good attention to God. In other words, don't do the the least you have to, you know. Don't just don't just do stuff when the boss is looking. And and don't be a a psycho foolish workaholic either. Just do your job. Just do what it is that you've been called to do. Don't just whistle while you work. Worship while you work. It's what we've been called to do as believers. There was work before the man ate from the forbidden tree. There was some measure of activity that he had to do some labor, but it wasn't considered work. It was considered good. But sin, sin changed all of that. See, what, what was good became different. His, his work became hard work, and it was hard work on cursed ground. And thorns and thistles and weeds, they were going to grow faster than green grass or the crops that he would try to plant. And he wasn't just going to you know, perspire a little bit on his forehead. He was going to work hard, and he was going to sweat like a horse. It was going to be hard work. And he was going to go work hard and and work this hard, cursed ground and and wait for the crops to grow and and wait for the harvest. And he was going to harvest the wheat and and harvest the barley. And he was going to grind it up. And he was going to go through the process of of making bread. All of a sudden, everything got much harder. Listen, I want you to know that that obeying God is is not easy all the time. (laughs) Obeying God is is not just a life of comfort and, and leisure and relaxation. Christianity is not sitting in a recliner on a tropical beach. However, sin will create hard work in your life. Hard, unnecessary work in your life. This may sound a little bit flippant, but several years ago, one of my oldest friends and I were talking about the people that we, were, that we heard about that were in, in multiple divorces. And I remember saying to him, I said, this sounds unbiblical, but I can't afford that world. You know, that's just another world that I can even think of financing, much less the the sin that's involved. That doesn't mean there's not heartache. That doesn't mean that there's not divorces that happen that that God blesses and and serves people in. It's, It's just that when we stray from the core of what God has called us to do, things get hard. doesn't mean that God's way is easy, but you can be assured 
that sin will create hard work that will wear you out. For how long? Well, look at the second part of the penalty. Verse 19. Till you return to the ground, from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, the curse of, of sin, it's, it's not just going to wear you out. The curse of sin brings death, real death. So let's just recap for a second. Before they rejected God, before they disobeyed God, marriage was good, work was good, childbirth had maybe some pain, maybe no pain, and there was no death. After they rejected God, after they disobeyed his, his one thing, marriage was hard work. Work was hard work. Childbearing had indescribable, multiplied pain. And now death has appeared. It's two different lists, two different stories. But someone might say, God, what's the big deal? I mean, it was fruit. I mean, why all of these unnecessary, severe penalties? Well, why would I want to follow a God that would do things like that? I read a report this week that said that when the movie Days of Thunder was being filmed down in Darlington, South Carolina, that, that the lead actor, Tom Cruise, was pulled over for doing 85 in a 55. Now, the movie's about NASCAR drivers, so you could see why he might speed when he's offset. Now, imagine that you heard about this, and imagine you heard that the officer that pulled him over didn't give him a ticket. But the officer just went up and said, hey, you know what, man, Mr. Cruz, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Can I get an autograph from my kid? Will that that be okay? Now, if you heard that the officer did that, we'd know that they wouldn't be fulfilling and carrying out the law. But the average person is is not going to get, like, really angry or mad that he didn't give him a ticket. But let's change the scenario a little bit. What if in driving 85 miles an hour, Tom Cruise would have plowed into the back of someone's car and the person in that car would have died because of his speed and because of the accident? Would we then say, no big deal if he gets off? He doesn't need a ticket. It's fine. I would hope we wouldn't because that would not be just. That would not be right. We, We shouldn't think like that. God did something amazing. See, don't be confused. This is not about fruit. See, God did an amazing thing. He created the first man. He created the first woman. He gave them everything that they needed. He gave them everything they needed to be rich, everything they needed to be satisfied. Everything he gave them, he gave out of love, and he gave freely. And he gave them just one rule, just just the one Don't eat from that one tree. But when the opportunity came, the man and the woman, they drove their car 85 miles an hour into that tree. They survived, but their perfect relationship with God was killed because of their sin. What should God have done? (laughs) He had every right to throw the book at him. But he doesn't. He doesn't strike him dead on the spot. 
Sure, he, he hands down some penalties, some punishment. And yes, one of those penalties is that eventually they were going to die, die. But notice what God does before. See, before we're, we're quick to say God is some mean supernatural ogre for, for doing all this penalizing over fruit, don't forget what God did before he handled the penalties down. Listen to verse 15, just a few verses back. And his curse to the enemy. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The enemy and all who follow after him are promised everlasting death. That's a promise. But the seed of the woman and all who follow him are promised that death will just bruise them, that death will just sting them. That's amazing. So, so who, who's the seed of the woman? And, and how can we know him since he has power over death? Stephen Cole says this, Since the fall, death is the enemy of every person. Death is no respecter of persons. Young and old, rich and poor, all must face death. But as terrible an enemy as death is, it forces us to come to terms with God and eternity. And then he says this, very few of us would do that if we didn't recognize our mortality. Death shouts at us that we desperately need to be right with God. Death shouts at us that we need to be rescued. Death shouts at us that we need to be right with God. If death didn't exist, we might never even consider that. About 2,000 years ago, a crowd started forming in Jerusalem. A man came riding on a donkey through that crowd. And the crowd, they, they started shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But why in the world would they start shouting those things at this man? Now here's why. Because he was the seed of the woman. He was the rescuer. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the one all the way back in the garden. He was the one that God was planning as the rescuer. He was the one who was coming to save me and you from the curse of sin. On the cross where Jesus died, the, the wrath of God was satisfied. On that cross, every sin, my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world, it was, it was laid on Jesus. And he absorbed all of that sin. He satisfied the payment of all of that penalty. And so on Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, and on April 23rd and, and the Sunday after that, and Christmas Sunday, maybe a birthday Sunday, on every Sunday and every Monday and every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Friday night at 9 o'clock, every spring break, the message from heaven never stops saying to me and you, come to the cross. Come to the death of Christ and live. Don't be not right with God. 
Don't let the relationship be killed. Come to the death of Christ and live. Come to the cross, the wondrous cross, and live.